Please standing with me out of respect for the Word of God and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to do something very unusual this morning. Uh, we're going to cover more than two verses today. The Lord willing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to begin our reading here with verse uh, 14, and we're going to read through verse 28. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division of the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And here's the punchline. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then the gifts of healings, helps, communications, administrations, various kinds of tongues. God, in His rich blessing and the reading of His Word, let's ask for His help and blessing upon His Word. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to us all who have gone astray from Your ways, and bring us again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of Your Word, Jesus Christ, Your Son, who with You and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure you can kind of see from that lengthy reading that this morning that we have our work out, our work uh, cut out for us. Uh, basically, I'm just going to orient you to where I think I'm going here. I think I'm going to do 14 through uh, 28, although I'm not going to deal uh, really at all with 28 because I want to save that for next time. Because I want to make good on my promise to you that whenever we're dealing with this matter of the spiritual gifts, that we'll go over them very carefully and very slowly and we'll actually do our best to interpret them so that you know what's going on. So that's sort of a heads up. And I want to start this morning uh, reminding you of something that we have made uh, a note of on numerous occasions as we have uh, proclaimed our way through uh, the book of Corinthians. And it's this. Uh, that the Corinthian church is experiencing sinful and dangerous division. And at least in this particular instance, it's because people are exalting themselves because they have an overinflated sense of self. 
And as they do that, they are demeaning and trivializing and acting in condescending ways towards uh, believers who they consider are simple believers because they don't have spectacular gifts. And all of that is causing the body to be discouraged and to be dispirited. And when that happens, the body uh, is undermined in its effectiveness. So that's the big picture. And let's just think about a couple of times where we've noted uh, obvious division. And the first time is back in chapter 1. And I know that's probably too far back for many of us to mem- uh, remember many, many, many years ago. But remember there, we said that there was this evidence of division. And Paul immediately um, addresses that back in verses 10 and 11. And there the division that the Apostle speaks of is the fact that some members within the congregation are lining up behind their favorite uh, apostolic superhero minister. And so some would say, well, I'm of Paul. Another would say, well, I'm of Cephas. Another would say, well, I'm of Apollos. Another said, I am of Christ. And they did that because they believed that by identifying and lining up with a particular apostolic superhero minister, that it was adding self-worth to themselves. And people were lining up against each other in church, and we had division. The next time we see uh, this exact word division used, it's also used in our passage here in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 27, is that... Um, It's with respect to the Lord's Supper, verse 18, chapter 11. Paul says, when you come together, I hear there are divisions among you. Again, we have the uh, illustration, the example of the Corinthians being ornery and cantankerous and divisive towards each other and uh, battling each other for positions so that they could sit in the inner rooms of these houses where we explained that that's where the real Lord's Supper was partaken in part of the inner room of the house while everybody sat on the outside who was not privileged enough to sit in there and they literally looked through windows and watched the rest of the church commute. And this led to divisiveness. Uh, It's obvious, people of God, as we think through the many examples in the book of Corinthians in chapter 5. In chapter 6, there's lawsuits. In chapter 7, there's problems with marriages. Uh, in chapters 8 through 10, there's problems with Christian liberty. In chapter 11, there's problems with head coverings. It seems that every time you turn the page in the book of Corinthians, what you find is that the Corinthians are fighting with each other. There's division among them. And that uh, tells us uh, uh, a very ugly truth. It's not just true of Corinth, but can really happen in churches. That uh, divisiveness can uh, almost become part of the DNA of a church. A divisiveness, orneriness, strife, contention can overtake a church. It can almost literally work its way into the very fabric and life of a church. And you better watch out when that happens because you're going to need to pass out boxing gloves and headgear every week when people come to church because uh, there's going to be rumbling. Now, people are going to fight. And they're going to fight about the color of the carpets. They're going to fight, fight about the temperature. They're going to fight about the painting. They're going to fight about the nursery. They're going to fight about relationships. They're going to fight about Sunday school classes. They're going to fight about programs. They're going to fight about songs. They're going to fight about instruments. 
They're going to fight about the way people are clothed and dressed. They're going to fight about everything you can think of. And they're going to fight about money. You see, uh, you can just think your way through the examples once this kind of mood and temperament works its way into the fabric of a church, it nearly consumes a church. And it happens one by one, almost as a domino, uh, as they're lined up. If, if you hit the first one, the rest begin to fall, and it, and it spreads across a church, and it ravages a body like cancer does. That's what's happening here in Corinth. And I haven't even begun exposition this morning, and I feel compelled to start with application. It can't be that way as a church. You simply cannot be that way as a church. A church is supposed to be something closer to a team. Now, there's all kinds of analogies and metaphors, and I think it's very consistent with this whole body metaphor, but the way a church is supposed to be, it's supposed to be like a team. Uh, everybody uh, wears the same uniform. Everybody has the same goal. Everybody is rooting for each other. Everybody is pulling for each other. Everybody has positions. Everybody knows the plays. Everybody is working together in a cohesive fashion. And the reason why they do that is because the team wants to have success. And if you're on a team that's not interested in having success, you might as well quit. As my coach one time said, and I I told you this too, he always prayed before the game. And he said, just remember, gentlemen, we're here to have fun, and losing ain't fun. And then we prayed for the victory. You see, a team works together because it wants to have success. And, And you see, the only way churches really function properly and then fulfill the calling which God has for them, which is to worship properly, to preach the word accurately, to confess uh, the system of doctrine which is contained in Scripture, and to be evangelistic, mission-minded, and church planting, is if the church comes together in a unified whole. And people put aside the bickering, they put aside the strife, uh, they beat down their sinful impulses which are uh, uh, continually prompting them to erect barriers and stumbling blocks to unity and soundness in relationships. And I go through all of this this morning because I can't help but look at the example of the fragmentation of the church in Corinth and say it's a lesson to us. You know, we can listen to all these comments, we can listen to all this rich instruction here. The Apostle Paul expounds as he brings forth this analogy of the human body and applies it to the church. We can look at all that and be fascinated by the argument, but if we don't get the essence of it, which is Paul rebuking the church for failing to act like it's supposed to. A team, a body, a whole not divided, not bickering, not fighting. You see, that's the aim. And so the challenge to us this morning is to look at ourselves. To look at ourselves. Are we engaging in divisive activities? Are we playing head games with each other? Acting hot one minute, cold the next. Refusing to talk to some people some weeks because we're in uh, a little bit of a tiff. 
by being uh, warm and hospitable to new people? Are we failing to pray for uh, others and to bear their burdens with them? Are we being intentionally difficult to call attention to ourselves? You know, it's fine to understand the argument, but that's only step one. We're to learn what the Scriptures say, and then fill our hearts with what the Scriptures say, and then apply what the Scriptures say. And here the Apostle is having to correct the Corinthians because they're not doing what they've been called to do. And so we have to take this call very seriously here this morning. Do not allow division to creep into us. Do not allow us to begin to have the the DNA of division in our church. Because if that happens, we'll never be used for what God wants us to be used for. And I think you all know what God wants us to be used for. God wants us to be used to partner with other churches to build as many churches that are reformed in Los Angeles as there are AMP and gas stations. You can't do that if you're fighting. You can't do that if you're overcome by divisiveness. You have to come together as a body. And Paul wants the same thing for the Corinthians. He wants them to be a worshiping body, a church planting body, a Christ exalting body, a Bible preaching body, one that is working together. And so he has to address problems. Now this one pertains to a divisiveness that is the result of some people privileging particular spiritual gifts above others. And we've already gone through this. They're privileging tongues. And then secondly, prophecy above other kinds of gifts. The end result is, and we're going to see this as we work our way through the passage, the end result is that there are a lot of people at church who feel lonely, who are discouraged, and who don't know how they fit into the church because they don't have the superstar Christian gifts that were being privileged in Corinth. And it was, it was undermining the unity of the body and the fellowship of the saints. And so, Paul goes into this very extended metaphor here to talk about the body. And then I want you to see this right up front, verse 27. Your Bible still should be open. He says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You see, uh, that's his point. He said, the whole reason why I talked about a body is because I wanted to really get your attention and then I wanted to tell you, you are a body. Everything I said about a body is going to apply to you, Corinth. Everything I said about a body is going to apply to you, all saints. And so we need to listen to what a body is. Because Paul's going to say, that's how a church should be. And I want us to notice also here. And I said I'm not going to go into 28 and 29 and talk about those gifts. We'll do that next week. But even if we did do that, we would notice that Paul doesn't explicitly flesh out every application of this concept of a church being a body. And he doesn't do that because he expects that Christians have common sense. And as they read this and they think about a body and they begin to work their way into the implications of that argument, that they'll begin to get it. And they'll start applying it to themselves. See, the analogy is clear enough. And so with that backdrop, let's look at what Paul does here. 
as he uh, talks about the human body, which forms an analogy to how the church as a body should function. And the very first thing, as we begin our exposition, I have three points, and I've never had a three-point sermon that's actually <coughs> been preached all at one shot. Well, hopefully we can get through here. But there's three points. First of all, the first point is that a body, by definition, is diverse. That's the point of verses 14 uh, through 19. Paul says, obviously, in unmistakable terms of verse 14, the body is not one member, but many. You see, a body is diverse. There's not just one member. This is a foundational point to all that the Apostle is going to say. He hammers it here so clearly. And and in the grammar, it's obvious. He says, a body is not a member. It's in the singular And then he goes, but a body is many, and it's in the plural, suggesting that a body has many parts. And so he's going to make this very clear in a moment. The body has many parts, and this is an obvious truth, if you look at the human body. Now, Paul may not have had the extensive knowledge of the human body that we have today, but we know today for certain that the body has many parts. It has 600 individual skeletal muscles. It has 213 bones. It has approximately 640,000 sense receptors. It has 5 million olfactory receptors, 9,000 taste buds, 100 trillion cells, a system of arteries and veins that is approximately 60,000 miles long, and 100 billion nerve cells in the brain. That's a lot of parts, I guess. That's a lot of parts. And whether Paul understood all that from common sense, he could realize that a body was a very intricate mechanism. And so he says it has many parts. He says, here's what I mean by that. So begin to apply it so that we'd all be clear. Verses 15 and 16. So he says, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any less part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any less a part of the body. What does he say? <clears throat> well, Dr. Morris suggests, and I agree with him, that the issue is this. Uh, the people who were the elite Christians, who had the elite and privileged gifts, were intimidating and frustrating and discouraging people who had the so-called lower gifts, who seemed to be indispensable parts. <clears throat> and so they began to think, well, you know, if I'm not a Christian who has one of these dominant gifts, I'm nothing. And so... The, the, the uh, examples are is the, the foot says, well, because I'm not a hand, I, I must not be a part of the body. And the ear says, well, because I'm just an ear and I'm not an eye, I must not be a part of the body. And, and you know, as the apostle brings that up, he refutes it just as soon as he brings it up. He says, just because you are an ear and not an eye doesn't mean you're a part of the body. So just because you're a foot and not a hand doesn't mean you're a part of the body. Now, I think uh, Paul intentionally chooses those two particular body parts, uh, foot, or rather hand and eye, because it was common sense, uh, based upon experience, that these are very developed and essential human body parts. I was reading about this last week. Uh, The hand is an extremely complex human feature. It has uh, 29 major bones, 29 joints, 123 ligaments, 34 muscles that move uh, the fingers and thumbs, 48 nerves, and 30 arteries, 
and it takes one quarter of the motor cortex of the human brain to move the hands. That's very complex and something maybe we don't think about. it. We realize that hands are very important and we can understand that they're very essential to a human functioning. But the hand is a very complex uh, part of the body. But he not just says it's the, it's the hand, he talks about the eye. And the eye is, is perhaps one of the most intricate uh, parts of the body. And it's, it's, it's actually one part of the human body that uh, absolutely mystifies people who try to account for the human body based upon naturalistic theories of evolution. And I love this. And if you read some people and they try to explain how the eye could possibly have evolved by, by uh, uh, natural selection and random mutation, they, they don't have any kind of answers, which is not all that surprising, <coughs> considering how intricate the eye is. It has six billion or six million separate nerves. And those nerves uh, sort of take pictures which they stamp upon the retina and then the retina sends those back in the form of codes to the brain and the brain processes those uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands and millions of codes in what are called nanoseconds which is faster than anything we can think of and that's how we see things I mean it is unbelievably complex and, and so, it's, again, it's not by mistake that Paul chooses the eye or the hands because uh, these things we know from human experience are absolutely essential uh, to what we do as humans. And Paul says it doesn't matter if you're just a foot. He says it doesn't matter if you're just an ear. He says... Uh, Yes, the eye and the hand are magnificent features of the body, but it doesn't mean you're any less a part of the body. If you're a foot or you're an ear. And then when you hit verse 17 and follow, you you begin to see why Paul puts it all this way. He begins to make sense of all of what's going on here. He says in verse 17, he says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole were hearing... Where would the smell be? You get the sense of what the Apostle is saying here. Uh, it would be something like this. Instead of verse 17 reading, if the whole body were an eye, what Paul is literally saying in the Greek is, if the whole body is I. Now think of that. I don't know if you've ever seen a cartoon figure that's just all I, but there's probably been somewhere. Somebody's probably done this. Just an eye. But Paul is saying, think about it. If the body was all eye, he wouldn't be able to hear. Well, that's the least. I mean, there's all kinds of functions that couldn't be fulfilled if that were true. But he said if the whole thing was a big, giant ear, he said, where would you have a sense of smell? You wouldn't have a nose on that thing. So you wouldn't be able to smell the flowers in the spring. The point of it is, Paul says, this just, this just 
goes to underscore the fact that we need many parts in one body for a body to be a body. Because if you take away those parts and you make it just one thing, if you just make it eye, if you just make it uh, ear, if you just make it nose, if you just make it hand, if you just make it heart, if you just make it foot, you plug in whatever you want. If you just make it that, there's so many other things that a body couldn't do. Because for a body to be a body, it needs multiple parts to function. A little bit more interesting trivia. I hope you're not bothered by this as I studied this. I was thinking about this very profound analogy that Paul draws. And I said, wow, this is really fascinating, the argument that he's making here. It's all going to plug back into the church. So we don't have to just think that we're studying biology this morning. If that's not your topic. It is for some people. It's not anatomy and physiology class, but just think about this. Just think through, because Paul uses this to say, this is what I want you to start thinking of. But this is fascinating. I thought it was fascinating. It takes 72 muscles of your body working together to form a single word. 72. It takes 200 muscles working together to take a single step. It takes 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown. And that's why they always tell you, smile because it's easier. But think of all of that. The complexity of the body. That's what Paul is getting at here. Uh, There's no way that one part existing by itself can be body because the body needs multiple parts working in coordinated function to fulfill what a body is supposed to be. So point number one the Apostle makes here in uh, verse 14 through 19 is that a body is not one member, it's many members. Now the second part of his argument begins in verse 21. He says, no body part is exalted over another. That's second point. Second point, no body part is exalted over another. Look at verse 21. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You see? Again, he's building on this idea that uh, in order for us to have coordinated movements and coordinated functions, we have to have multiple members working together. And it's very simple here as we think back now to the illustrations we gave. 72 muscles in order to form a word. Well, the tongue can't say to the other 72 muscles or the other 71 muscles, I'm more important than the other 71. Can't say that because it needs all the other 71 working together to form the word. The foot can't exalt itself over the other uh, 200 muscles that are needed to make a foot uh, move forward or step backwards, you see. Because by itself, one part of the body can't fulfill the functions uh, that it's there to perform. No one member is better than the other. Paul brings that up again in verses 22 through 24 in a different way. He says in verse 22, On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Again, it gets at this issue. Can one body part think of itself as more exalted than another? Can, can the person who speaks in tongues uh, look at the person 
uh, who can barely form words and sentences, can I look at them and say, I'm better than you? Paul's saying, no. No. In fact, he goes beyond that and he says that the weaker person, the weaker member, is necessary. He says, it's much truer. It's much truer. You see? On the contrary, it's much truer. He's refuting what's going on in verse 21. That the, the eye can say he doesn't need the foot or the hand and so forth. He says, on the contrary, the weaker are necessary. They're indispensable. Then verse 23 and on into 24, he... Um, he brings up a very interesting argument. That's probably all I'll say about how to describe it. It's interesting. Uh, verse 23, he says, Those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, and then the first part of 24, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. And uh, it might sound a little perplexing, but just think about this for a second. The key word to understanding uh, what Paul is saying here in verses 23 and 24 uh, is that the word there, bestow, I hope you see that in the middle of verse 23, bestow, literally means clothe. It literally means clothe. And if you want to verify that, just go to Matthew 27, 28. The very word there is used of uh, the soldiers clothing Jesus in a scarlet robe. Now, if you think about that, the rest of the verse begins to make sense. Instead of having bestow, right, clothing, on these we clothe. Now, he talks about less honorable parts. Okay? And clothing them. I don't think it requires a lot of explanation to figure that out. Uh, what parts do you cover when you go to the gym and you go to the beach? Uh, we don't need to draw pictures here. I think it's fairly understandable. Uh, we don't put clothes on our face. We don't put clothes on our hands and arms and legs. At least not in Southern California we don't because it's beautiful and warm and sunny here all the time. But if we do put clothes on those parts of the body, it's for protection. It's not because it's, they're less honorable. And it gets us to understand what's going on here. Paul says, even these parts that we cover, which may appear to be less honorable, he says, if you think about it, the case is really that we're honoring them. That's how Paul argues it. Now, he doesn't completely unravel the logic of that. And uh, I, I'm fine to just leave it there. I'm just listening to his argument. I'm saying that's his argument. He's saying uh, we clothe the less honorable. So he's just saying by analogy, it can't mean then that they're somehow inferior and expendable and unnecessary. We're, he says we're bestowing honor on them. You follow? So, we can't look at even the less honorable parts and say they're unnecessary to the body. And so that all those verses, 21 through 24, basically just underscore one main point. 
One part is not exalted over another. One part is not exalted over another. Now, here's the third step in the argument, and we made it to point number three, which is good. The third step in the argument is this. This is why all of this matters, okay? And the third point is God has created and designed the body. That's why uh, this whole argument holds together. That's why it's relevant. God has created and designed the body. And you see that uh, illustrated in verse 18. He says, But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as He desired. The concept of creation is evident in that word placed. It's an underscoring of a sovereign action of God. The reason why there are ears and nose and eyes and feet and all the different component parts of the body is because God created created it. God sovereignly put it there. Now, I thought about spending today just doing one entire sermon on that point. Because that is the foundation of the Christian worldview. If you take creation out of the Christian message... You just eliminated the Christian message. If you take creation out of the Christian message, you just eliminated the Christian message. In other words, if all things are really ultimately here by an act of random mutation and chance through the means of natural selection and God had nothing to do with it, then the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is simply motivational fiction. That's it. It's simply a story about some strange things happening to one person 2,000 years ago, and they might be inspiring, but there's no meaning to it, because everything's random. You see, this is at the foundation of the Christian worldview, and this is what is being attacked on every turn, and it's completely understandable why secular atheism and naturalists attack the biblical doctrine of creation because they know if they win on this particular issue, they won! God's not the creator. We could just set aside everything. This is foundational. This Paul alludes to here in verse 18 is at the root and foundation of the whole biblical worldview going all the way back to the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. If you don't have that, the rest of it falls apart. Christianity would just be another religion. And so it's attacked at every hand. And the Apostle Paul begins his argument here for the body and its uniqueness and its its wholeness and its unity and how all the parts are so essential to the proper functioning of the whole. Paul goes into all of that because he says the reason why it's so important is because God created the body. He created it and then he designed it. See, it's not just that he created it. It's not just that God... uh, 
you know, sort of whipped up some raw material that had some sort of uh, energizing force in it and sort of uh, intelligently all by itself then constructed the world as we know it. Paul doesn't say that God just created and whipped up the raw stuff of creation. He says God made man and He designed him. Look at verse 24. It's in the second sentence of verse 24. It says, God has composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, and now verse 25, so that there may be no division. You see, it's not just creation, but it's design. Again, alluding back to this wonderful picture in Genesis chapter 2, and we referred to it and talked about it in the past, how God got down on His hands and knees, and He shaped mud into the form of a man and blew into Him the breath of life. It's creation, but it's also design, because He said He composed Him, He caused all of the parts to fit together in an overall arrangement. And he did that for a purpose so that there would be no division in the body. You see, that's design. It's not just creation. It's design. In other words, there's purpose. There's purpose. That's how Paul can... That's the reason why Paul can spend so much time talking about this body. And why it matters so much that it has many parts and many functions and, and it needs all the parts working together in a coordinated fashion to produce certain kinds of action. It's essential because God made it that way. And because God made it that way and because it's not by randomness and accident and natural selection and every other crazy idea you come up with for why it happened this way, it's because God sovereignly determined it to be that, created that way, designed it to be that way, that now Paul can draw a meaningful inference from that. Paul is is now going to make the argument because God created and because God designed the body to be that way we cannot reduce the body to one or two parts we cannot exalt one or two parts above the other because God made them to be an integrated whole and that's the only way it can function and if it stops being an integrated whole with many parts it's not a body anymore And effectively what he's saying to the Corinthians, if you persist in what you do, exalting one or two gifts above everything else, he said what you just did is you killed the body. He says if you do that, what will you end up with? Look at verse 25. Division. God has created and designed it so that there would be no division. When we function in a way that's contrary to the way a body functions and is designed and created, what happens? Division. Schism. Like I described at the outset of this message, the DNA of the church becomes divisive. And when that happens, the church begins to ravage and to devour itself. You could have a whole bunch of members, but when you have a church that starts that, it's not long. It's not long until the judgment of God starts coming. 
But Paul makes it very clear here, first of all, the whole reason why. Now let's come back to verse 27. And verse 27 should make a lot of sense to us now. The apostle says, now you are Christ's body. In other words, uh, it, it, it's so emphatic in the original, you stands at the very front of the sentence in the Greek. It's just, it's, uh, it's like Paul grabbing them by the shoulders and saying, listen up. Everything I just said about body, it applies to you. It applies to the church because the church is a body. It's Christ's body. Let's just get some applications here and we're done. Because the church is Christ's body, the very first obvious application, we've already been through it, but I'm just going to add a couple of things as they come out of the latter part of the text here. Because the church is a body, it's not to be divided. Because the church is a body, it's not to be divided. And uh, if we just want to, uh, to put some flesh on those bones... If we, if we can't quite get our arms around what it means not to be divided, all you have to do is look at verse 25 and 26, and you get a real clear picture of what a church looks like that's not divided. Look at verse 25. He says, So that there be no division, but that the members have the same care for one another. You ask me, Pastor Sotel, what does it mean this morning for us not to be divided? Well, the Apostle Paul would say to you that all the members of the body have the same care for one another. And that word for care means to have anxious concern. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. But have you ever sat in an emergency room with a loved one? And they took their name and address and insurance information. And then they sent them in the back and said, you can't come right now. And you know something's wrong. And you don't know what it is. And you know, usually the emergency room is filled with people who are coughing like we all are this morning. Full of people who are sick and broken down. they got TVs on and things that distract you. But what is it that characterizes you? You're leaning forward on your chair. Because you have nothing but anxious concern for the loved one who just went through those doors. That's what this word means. That every part of the body has for every other part. Not mild concern. (laughs) He says anxious concern. You want to see a church body that's not divided, you'll see that when you see that the members all take concern for each other. They carry each other's burdens. They, they, They enter into each other's sorrows. And they share each other's joys. And I know that's what it means because Paul says that in verse 26. He says, if one of the members suffers, all of the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
You see, if one member suffers, everybody's on the phone and on the email and the internet saying, hey, let's pray. Let's get down there. Let's pray. Let's help them. Let's get involved. Let's do whatever we can do. Let's send cards. Let's give them flowers. Let's talk to them. Let's encourage them. Let's, let's let them know we care. That's what a body does that's not divided, is everybody takes a mutual concern and interest in each other's problems. Not to be nosy, not to fish around, not to get dirt, not to have, you know, not to have pity, but to have concern to show real compassion. And if you don't feel that way towards the members of the church, you're in sin. If you don't have concern for your brothers and sisters, back to forward, left to right, you're in sin. And you are contributing towards division because that's what a church is supposed to have. Unity because it's Christ's body. And it's to have unity out of an awareness that God has designed the church so that it would be many parts functioning in a coordinated fashion, all the parts caring. And so if you're, uh, if you're this morning in a little battle with somebody, you better knock it off. Because that's not unity, that's division. And then it says that the members show, uh, they rejoice with those who are honored. In other words, there's not a bunch of jealous people in the church. You see that? Uh, You know what will kill relationships faster than anything? Jealousy. When people are jealous, it will kill it. You can't have jealousy. If you have jealousy, it kills things. This is not jealousy. When one member is honored, everybody rejoices. You see. So, just a little picture. This is what it means not to be a divided, schismatic church. We're on the same page. Loving and caring and rejoicing. The other point of application I make here from the passage, which flows very obviously from the entire point here that Paul makes about the body having many parts, and, and you know, he comforts, he comforts the ear and says, it's okay that you're not the eye. <laughs> it's kind of funny to think in that kind of language. Tell the foot, don't worry about it, you're not a hand. You know, you're okay, you're a part of the body. Talking about the less honorable members, you know, that whole analogy there that's kind of we're not yeah uh, <coughs> they have honor you see what I'm saying is he, he's uh, from all of those things here's what you're supposed to take it doesn't matter what you are this morning whether you think your foot or whether you think your hand or whether you think your ear or your nose or you're this or you're that the apostle would say to you you're a part of the body and you matter And if you forgot all the biology, anatomy, physiology lessons we had this morning, that's okay. You have to get this. If you're a part of the body, you matter. And if you're a part of the body, you have a function. And your function may be a supporting muscle, one of those 200 supporting muscles that move a foot forward. Your function may be one of the supporting muscles which help turn a frown upside down. Or inside out, or whatever it is. I forget the saying. But you get my point. You are a part, and because you're a part, you have a function, and that means you're important. 
And that's what I would say to you this morning. The challenge of this passage to you is not so much that we beat everybody down who's proud. We do that. That's obvious. I think we get that point. We can't be proud and patting ourselves on the back and exalting ourselves and being condescending and arrogant. No, that's not going to work here. We'll call you out for that. But I just say what everybody has to do, everybody has to do is say this. I'm a part of the body. I'm part of the body. And I have a function. I'm a part of the body and I have a function. I have a role. My role is important. Because what if one of those little muscles didn't pull its weight? The tongue couldn't move and speak. It doesn't matter what your role is. You have one. God challenges you this morning uh, to be what He's made you to be, to be grateful to be what He's made you to be, to cultivate more and more what He's made you to be so that this happens, that the many parts doing their own divinely ordained thing will make the body do its thing. And that's what we need. The many parts to do their God-ordained thing so that the body as a whole can do its thing. And if we do that, two things follow. The whole body is edified and built up. And Christ is exalted. And that's what we're here for. Let's pray.